Well, good afternoon or morning out of everybody is today. Uh, thank you for joining today's webinar. I am excited to present and I actually do a couple of things. One, kind of lately, I wanted to make sure that we educated our folks on it. And then two, of course, even maybe even more importantly, and sorry for the any background noise, but even more importantly, introduce our new VP of Communication and Public Affairs, Ajwa, who will, has just joined us and who will um, lead and moderate us today. So without further ado, I want to uh, welcome Ajwa and uh, thank her for moderating today and pass it on to her. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much, Brandon, for that introduction. I am so excited to join the ever-growing team at the National Minority Quality Forum that has been an institution and is just going to newer heights. And I'm so glad that you all are joining us on this Friday lunch hour to talk about this extremely important topic of monkeypox. And we have such a dynamic panel. Uh, and you know, we were just talking to um, one of the panelists that I'm about to introduce you to just yesterday, and he was just blowing our minds regarding all the implications of just the latest crisis, uh, public health crisis that we have. And so, you know, kudos to all of you who are tuning in now because you're getting really important information to share with your networks um, about this disease and this condition that would be, I think, extremely useful. And we're already thinking of a part two. That's how good the information is. So um, without further ado, I would really like to introduce Mr. Ivor Urek of Healthcare Ready. And uh, Mr. Ivor, do you wanna just share a few uh, words about who you are and your background before we get into the questions. Sure. Um, hi, everybody. Thank you for having me here. And thank you, Ajo, for this introduction. Um, my name is Ivor Urek. I'm the lead program analyst at Healthcare Ready. Healthcare Ready is a 501c3 uh, nonprofit organization that's nationally focused on ensuring coordination between the government and private sector uh, so that patients continue to have access to healthcare uh, during times of disaster. Um, we are also a healthcare and public health sector ISEC. So we do provide uh, information readily. Anybody can contact us and we will try to connect either patients uh, or public and private sector uh, during times of response and find information that might be crucial uh, for their livelihood at the time of response and the disaster. We also um, do work in critical infrastructure analysis with always equity in mind. We look at distribution of chronic conditions on county level to inform not just ourselves, but both public and private sector during response um, to the, those vulnerable and socially vulnerable communities. Um, I personally uh, have an uh, MA in International Affairs. I did work in health policy earlier on in my life, focusing on people living with HIV 
in the Balkans um, and working on uh, vaccination, um, vaccinations pertaining to Roma population over there. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Ivor. I really appreciate that. Um, I think it's always best when someone could introduce themselves. They, they always do a better job than the moderator. So I appreciate you indulging us on that. I also just want to encourage folks to um, also introduce themselves if you can in the chat. Really just love to know who is here today um, before we dive in. Okay. So, so, and then we will be having one more panelist. Um, she'll be joining us later. And at that point, uh, we will introduce her as well. Okay, so Eva, are you ready? I'm ready, Ajawa. Just, yes, <laughs> let's go. Okay, so we're going to start really with the basic question. What is monkeypox? What do people need to know about the basics of what it is um, to prepare for it? Great question. So monkeypox is a double-stranded DNA virus that is closely related to smallpox. It comes from the same Pox viridae family of viruses, and um, it comes from the family of orthopox viruses. But the clinical presentation of the virus is different. Um, the historic clinical representation include headache, fever, exhaustion, muscle aches, and uh, appearance of pus pussy lesions that crust over time. Uh, usually they self-resolve within two to three weeks. Um, generally, the lesions would first appear on the palms of the hand, then just because we are very tactile people and often touch our face, would move to the face, and then around the body. Um, that would be the basic on the monkeypox virus. And okay. it's important to say that monkeypox is not classified as an SDI. It's a sexually associated disease it spreads through close contact. And, and would you be able to share how it's evolved over time without divulging too much of our what we're gonna talk about later? Would you be able to share how it's evolved? Sure, yes. So monkeypox was the, uh, first noted in 1958 uh, during a transport of two monkeys uh, from Singapore to Denmark. And that's why I was given this misnomer, monkeypox. From this point on in this conversation, I will try to use MPV just to avoid repeating that misnomer. Um, and, but the first human-to-human -human transmission was noticed in 1970s in Africa. Since that time, um, the monkeypox virus has been endemic to Africa and it has stayed there for three decades until there has been an outbreak in 2003. Um, since 1970s, the, the monkeypox virus has spread within 11 countries, generally 11 countries within Africa. And it was mostly constrained to rural communities. It has many animal reservoirs. We do not really know who or what the, the host, primary host of the virus was. Um, but we do know that it, it was mainly transmitted in rural areas through rodents and interactions with rodents. Um, and now, uh, since 2017, we do have uh, 
a different represent, clinical representation of the virus that started with the outbreak in 2017 in Nigeria. And historically, there have been two clades, clade one, which was West African clade, and clade two, which is the Congolese clade. The clade one wasn't as transmissible or virulent as clade two, yet it seems that what we are dealing with now might be a third clade, uh, which originates from clade one to West African clade. And, and how the um, virus has evolved, how has healthcare ready, because uh, I understand you are leading the, your organization's response to it, the monkeypox, how has healthcare ready served the community in response? Thank you. Um, so what we are seeing uh, now is the human to human transmission, which wasn't so common before um, during this outbreak. So, um, and most of the infections are presenting themselves in 90 locations that they are not endemic in. Um, Healthcare Ready took a stance of engaging in response um, sooner than later because we were seeing some very troublesome messaging come out. And we wanted to steer the community, uh, both on the public, uh, public and private side, and syncing and harmonizing and putting out messaging that would be most conducive while eliminating stigma and keeping everybody informed. When it comes to therapeutics, distribution of therapeutics, and what implications that has just for regular folks, but also for providers in the clinical setting, people on the supply chain side, and what are some processes and best practices when dealing uh, in response with this disease. Thank you so much. At this time, we are really excited, drumroll please, to introduce our next panelist, Clover Barnes, who is Senior Deputy Director at DC's Department of Health for HIV AIDS, Hepatitis, STD, and TB. But Clover, if you could share just a little bit about yourself before we can go into your, uh, the questions. Sure. Good afternoon. I am a nurse by trade, and I have worked at the D.C. Department of Health for about eight years now, uh, nine months in the current role that I am in right now. I am a board member of NASDAD, and I'm very happy to be here to meet with you all today. I'm also the provider team lead for our monkeypox response for D.C.'s Department of Health. And with that introduction, same question I just asked Ivor, um, how has the DC Department of Health responded to the monkeypox outbreak in the district? And does DC conduct contact tracing? We do. So we started out by, uh, our first case came to us in, in May. And we started out with one case that we had to contact trace that had 50 close contacts from one person. Um, the person had come from overseas and they were our first case here in DC. Um, we have set up an, an epidemiological team who's on call 24 hours a day for providers um, to call for monkeypox or to report monkeypox cases or for support in diagnosing or treating a monkeypox case. We've set up an incident command team within DC Department of Health to provide communication and outreach um, and then a, a set of vaccination clinics to uh, provide vaccinations to folks 
who are at high risk for monkeypox, as well as a site for those who are close contacts to get vaccinated within uh, four days. Um, the second question was, are we contact tracing? And we absolutely are. A lot of people know contact tracing from the COVID instance. Um, we actually contact trace a lot of diseases like HIV and uh, sexually transmitted diseases. And we do that so that we can do partner notifications and try to stop the spread in partners that the person who contracted whatever that disease is um, can get notified that they were exposed and try to get um, other preventative medications to the people before they seroconvert or get whatever disease it is that we're contact tracing. So there's a team of about four uh, contact tracers. We traditionally call them DIS or disease intervention specialists who um, are working on monkeypox right now in the district. We also work with a regional team of contact tracers in Maryland and Virginia when we have cases that cross the jurisdictional border because we know those borders are very fluid. And would you say that's indicative of, of the kind of state and local health response you've seen across the country? Would, would you say DC is unique in its response? I think we have been a little unique um, in our response. One, at one point, we had the highest number of cases per capita in the country. And so the way that the vaccine was allocated from the federal government is not a resource that we can procure on our own. We have to receive it from the strategic national stockpile from the federal government. And at one time, they were using a formula um, by which they were giving vaccines to jurisdictions. And that formula included the number of cases that you have. So at one point we had more, more vaccine than most places in the country. And with us having about 700,000 residents, it was a lot of vaccine. And so we decided to uh, just give first doses to start to try to spread the protection as far and wide as we could to try to prevent the monkeypox from spreading. Um, we talk a lot about in epidemiology around about doubling times or how long does it take for our case rate to double. Um, in the beginning in June, our case rate was doubling every two days. Um, our case rate is doubling about every 11 days now. So our one dose vaccination strategy um, did work to reduce the number of new infections. We see our curve, our bell curve curving down now. Um, we are giving second, vac second dose vaccinations now so that um, people can get their full course. We also expanded the eligibility for vaccination to folks who live, work, and play in the district, as well as those who um, may come and receive other healthcare services like Ryan White or some other service in the district, um, trying to stop that spread across the borders because we know that people live, work, and play across the borders. And our college students are back with seven universities in the district. Um, it's hard to restrict residency when people come from all over the world to attend universities here. Um, and so we wanted to make sure that we were working to prevent the spread of monkeypox on college campuses as well. Thank you so much for that response. Uh, just a reminder that folks can, if you'd like, uh, submit questions in the chat. We're going to now pivot to the heavier part of the program. So let's talk about obstacles. Um, Let's talk about what the obstacles you all have seen in containing the spread of this virus. And Clover started to hint at some, but we really want to hone in on obstacles in pertaining to specific demographics, whether it's um, they've been the impact on women of color 
or in the LGBT community. Um, you know, what has been the response been like for those communities? And then who was left behind? Maybe we could start with Ivor and then Clover, if you want to jump in after, please feel free. Great, um, thank you for the question. So first, uh, a lot of the messaging has been very focused on trans bodies. Um, and then it has morphed into being more focused on men sleeping with men, MSN. Um, and that's where sort of it has stayed. Yet at certain different phases, uh, we have seen that some messaging was focused on bigger events or rave parties and gay circle culture, that there is certain ethnic group that, that might be more susceptible to joining those. And now we know that, that this disease is not as prevalent or virulent within trans bodies or uh, in those high circulation, close, close contact open areas or even closed areas. Um, so that would, that would be one way of certain demographics being left out. So certain people of color, people who do have um, close contact with more people who wouldn't fit those uh, criteria, as well as people who, yes, come to work and play in different jurisdictions, but reside in others. We still do have certain people who are left out. Those would be migrants who are now in particularly being bused to DC who do not have the residency either in the district or in close regions. And there has been, there have been, um, I would say, maybe mental barriers put on everybody and taking that qualification survey where you need to think, hey, do I fit this criteria? I think we all sort of, when we are approaching a doctor or any kind of medical setting, we always think, do we really fit? Do we exhibit these uh, behaviors? And um, yes, so I think self-qualifying yourself for a vaccine when you should or shouldn't have, um, was a certain problem that we saw at the, at the very onset in this response. Wow. Uh, Clover, anything to add? I'll agree with that. We heard from a lot of people that the survey questions that we asked were intrusive and uh, were not very uh, culturally appropriate in the way that they were asked. And uh, we tried to respond to that in, in updating the questions and stopping using the survey in some instances. I will say a lot of times we have to ask questions that the government wants us to answer in order to uh, receive the vaccine, in order to report on the vaccine that we've received. Um, and so sometimes we're bound by things that, that we can't necessarily change. Um, and then there are other instances where there are things that we would want to know, right? We, we have to, we have a, a limited resource that we're trying to ration out and we want to respond to the epidemic and, and hitting the people who are hit hardest first, you know, the hardest and, and, and prioritize populations. But that can also be stigmatizing, right? Because when we talk about an infection that a virus that is passed from skin to skin, everybody has skin. And anybody's skin can touch somebody else's skin. And so, you know, despite the fact that we saw in the beginning, 100% of our cases were in a certain demographic, it didn't feel 
good to anybody that certain people were targeted and other people weren't. And it reminded people a lot of our early response to HIV and the AIDS epidemic. And so, um, you know, that's a place where I feel like we could have worked with community better to get better messaging and to talk about the reasons why some of those questions were asked and published demographics so people understood what the incidence of this outbreak really looked like um, to maybe help better understanding for why things were happening the way they were. It's almost as if you know my agenda and what my question will be. <laughs> That's a great segue into the next question, which was, um, what role do community partners and community health centers play? So uh, as you're getting this feedback from the community, and I'm curious how you got that feedback too, uh, if you could provide color there, but you know, how, did you all engage with community partners um, uh, and, and community health centers? Is there a role still to be played for those institutions? And I'll go to Clover first and then Yvonne. There's absolutely a role for them to play going forward. You know, there are a lot of people who aren't going to come to a clinic that's branded by the government, no matter what we do, especially migrants. You know, Ivor talked about migrants and people who are undocumented. You know, their fear of being in a government system is, is a real thing. And so I think when we get to the point where we can uh, expand the vaccine to deliver it to FQHCs and to have them or community clinics provide the vaccine directly without the government in the middle. I think that'll break down a barrier. Um, I also want to address what you said about community partners. So we've done a few town halls, community town halls with some grassroots organizations, a lot of uh, MSM or same gender loving men serving organizations who serve uh, men of color to talk about you know, what would have been better? What can we do going forward to um, engage and involve folks in a more meaningful way? How can we uh, message in a better way? They also did some surveys of their clients as well that they were willing to share um, with us about feelings and, and stigma and thoughts around uh, the virus. And so we are using that in our messaging moving forward to try to do better. Okay, and Ivor, did you have anything to add? Yes, I, I just want to pretty much just double down on everything that Clover uh, said. Um, FQHC, so Fairly Qualified Healthcare Centers, um, should play a bigger role in this response. There is, um, especially us as gay men, we often, those who are on pre-exposure prophylaxis against HIV, we do come in for uh, quarterly checkups and those quarterly checkups could be used to also administer the vaccine, um, especially in those populations that feel that they were historically left behind or experimented on um, and be approached with, with some sort of sensitivity in that safe space in one-on-one -on -one interaction without the presence of other people in the room which I think is important uh, for everyone in that vulnerable state. Um, and yes, so th there's definitely um, a space for uh, more of an engagement of um, FQACs. Okay. Um, there are two questions coming in that I just wanted to say, uh, Nakombi, I see them. We're gonna get to them in a second, haven't forgotten. But one last question uh, about this, this interplay of, of 
resources that you've mentioned, are there resources that are being underutilized at this moment? I mean, we did talk about how FQHCs should play a larger role, but are there existing resources right now that people should know about and they're not utilizing appropriately? So I'll start. I think there are, definitely. Um, we still have appointments that go uh, unused for the vaccine, vaccines for our vaccination clinics. We may walk up appointments on Fridays. Um, we eliminated or decreased the number of survey questions for those walk-in clinics so that it makes it um, a little easier. I also think there's a treatment for monkeypox that, or for the virus, I should say, that folks aren't using. I think they should use it. We've been advising folks to use it right away. Um, it's available free. You can order it through uh, the DC Department of Health if you're a DC provider, and you can use it for any patient regardless of their home jurisdiction. But it can decrease symptoms and it can decrease, um, increase the healing time for pox um, if you use the, the T-pox right away. And so I wish that folks would, uh, would use it for their patients right away. As soon as they diagnose them, just go ahead and give them the medication. It'll decrease the suffering that people have to experience. You guys, I love Clover. She's basically self-moderating this panel. <laughs> that goes right into these questions. Uh, I'm going to go to Ivor with this question first. What are the symptoms of monkeypox virus? And can an asymptomatic patient transmit the virus? So just to go to the latter part first, we still don't know if an asymptomatic case can transmit the virus. Yes, yet certain, as I said at the beginning, certain most common symptoms were headaches, exhaustion, fever, um, general malaise before the onset of lesions that generally predominantly would start on the hands, then go on to the face and on the body. But the clinical representation has changed. And we, we are seeing that lesions can pop up and just looking like small little pimples and zits. They do not even need to be that big. Um, they mostly now in, in this probably novel clade, um, it, it has something to do where you were, what, what, where the point of contact might have been. Certain people might have many lesions, some might not have any at all. And those who don't have any lesions might be in excruciating pain as well. Um, we have all probably by now heard that people are having excruciating pain, especially if the lesions are in the rectal region or genital region, uh, which has been very, um, definitely concerning for everybody and everybody is thinking of that. But I think one thing to also mention is that when it comes to battling stigma, uh, everybody in public health side has had an issue where there are, are definitely co-infections with STIs and also COVID. And how do we message without kind of implicating that stigma and recycling it and further spreading it? Um, so it's important that, that we do not exclude STIs or monkeypox when, when testing for one or the other. Uh, and one important reason why, uh, why monkeypox is still not an STI is because there is no proof that through bodily fluid such as vaginal fluid or semen, there is a transmission of the virus. 
Okay, thank you so much. I'm going to sort of combine these two questions. Um, uh, also from the combi, how long does it take from infection to presentation of symptoms? And then from Cynthia Haley, should you go to the ER if you think you've contracted monkeypox or schedule an appointment with your primary care doctor? If I may answer this. So um, technically we are going about four days since exposure that one has to get a vaccine as a form of PEP, so post-exposure prophylaxis. That is when we believe that prophylaxis is still gonna be uh, efficacious in decreasing the symptoms or eliminating them. Yet that's when we sort of see the onset of, of primary symptoms four days and on before we used to message six days to 13 days that most are gonna see some sort of symptom pop up. And Clover, if you have anything to add? I agree, he is right on the money. Okay. I have nothing to add. Don't worry, I'm going to Clover soon, don't worry. Uh, and um, I, I'm sorry if you answered this question, should you go to the ER? if you've contracted monkeypox or you make an appointment with your primary care doctor? You want me to take that one? So yeah, you, that. you can go to the ER. I wouldn't advise that as your first point. Um, urgent cares have been the most frequently used place to uh, get tested for monkeypox. You can call your primary care doctor. They are probably going to send you to urgent care though. Um, but if you want to just walk in and make a, a quick visit, uh, urgent care would be my first step was what I would suggest. Okay. All right. To Clover, we're going to actually now go into um, further discussion about treatment and vaccine. Um, who is eligible to receive a monkeypox vaccination? Um, and, uh, and what have you seen as far as folks who have um, have there been any issues about accessing the vaccine at all? I'll go to Clover first. So right now in the district, um, if you live, work, or play in the district, despite living in another jurisdiction, you are eligible for the vaccine. Um, people who, are, uh, who exchange sex for anything, for money, for housing, for shelter, people who work in saunas, uh, bathhouses, any place where sex or close body contact happens because um, there are sex clubs in the district. Um, anybody who is in the LGBTQ family or identifies there is eligible. Um, any college student in the district is eligible to receive the vaccine. Um, if you are homeless, you can bring a note from the homeless shelter that you live in in the district and you can uh, receive your vaccine in the district as well. We are working to do some outreach um, or in-reach to go to homeless shelters to actually vaccinate some folks because um, sometimes the transportation can be a barrier and uh, to make sure that we're reaching those who are most vulnerable, including our new LGBTQ shelter. You are anything to add? No, I think Clover pretty much uh, um, said all, but um, when it comes to just access to vaccines, it really depends on the jurisdiction and in what phase of a response they are in. Um, generally, CDC has marked four phases of response of allocation. 
Um, so it really depends on the jurisdiction and one phase they are and how, how comfortable they are moving to the next phase or administering the second dose to and to what constituents. Have we already seen an inequitable response as far as that goes in regards to phases? Or is it, does it change dramatically depending on whether you're north, south, or rural, or urban? Yes, uh, definitely we have noted, or CDC has also noted that there has been a rural-urban divide. Uh, yet we have seen certain jurisdictions down south um, that, that might, uh, not have had the rightful response or asked for enough vaccine to battle um, this outbreak. We've also seen a, a decrease in the number of uh, people of color, a disparity in, in the number of uh, non-white, I mean, non-people of color and people of color who are getting the vaccine, as opposed to those who are uh, testing positive in the district. There's about a 20% difference in the African American, the amount of African American folks with a percentage who have tested positive for monkeypox and those who are being vaccinated. Um, mm -hmm. We also see that in our uh, folks who identify as Latino, Latina, Latinx. And so um, that's a place where we still need to do some work to make sure that we are reaching those folks. Um, we have heard some vaccine hesitancy in that community. And so, um, we're working to try to dispel some of the misconceptions around. A uh, question just came in concerning vaccine eligibility, eligibility. Is every age group from children to old people eligible to take the vaccine? And yeah. is there a recommendation regarding dosage? You have to be 18 um, unless you have an exposure. And then uh, we work with the children's hospital to vaccinate children because it has to be titrated to a certain amount, um, the dose has to be changed when you're dealing with children. But the vaccination clinics in the district that are free and, and open and available are open to anyone 18 and up. Okay. Your, your, your answer about distribution is very interesting. And just out of curiosity about if you either of you are aware of what it's been like distributing the monkeypox vaccine to other countries, um, it ha has U.S the United States played a role in that? Uh, is there a concern there, especially um, when we get to the holiday season with travel um, from abroad? Is, is there any consideration about that? So I can take this. Uh, United States owns an unprecedented amount of Genios vaccine um, to the point that we are causing a global inequality in that sense. Um, there is only one producer of Genio's vaccine, and that's Bavaria Nordic in Denmark. Um, the issue isn't necessarily in production, but in filling capacity. And uh, United States has moved to, uh, I believe, uh, in Michigan, we are opening a filling uh, operation in order to fill two and a half million doses, I mean, two and a half million vials of the vaccine. Um, now the dose due to the intradermal Montox technique of administration, uh, fivefold increases the, the, the number of doses that we can administer. Um, and, and we have seen certain European countries where there hasn't been endemic presence of, of MPV that they're running out of the virus 
and having and had more cases than virus itself, as is the case in of Spain and some in Germany, but Germany ordered. So yes, so we 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 do have um, a lot of the, uh, of the vaccine, and we still don't know uh, how we are going to distribute the extra vaccine that we might have. Will it go to endemic countries such as in Africa, like we did during our COVID response? What we're going to do with this vaccine? Are we going to keep on distributing? I guess it all depends on how this disease will progress and spread. Now Ivor is doing a great job self-monitoring. Wonderful. Uh, before we get into our next set of questions, though, I, uh, oh, sorry, before we have a poll, we're going to actually uh, pull up a poll soon. I do have two quick questions that have come in. One is, um, when you say eligibility is 18 and older, mm -hmm. are there certain restrictions based on sexual activity still, specifically in DC? No, we took those away. Um, once we got the intradermal modality to give the vaccine and it increased our supply significantly, we could open it up um, to significantly more people. Is that, is that still a pending or is that happening now? It's happening now. On Fridays, you can walk into any of the three vaccination clinics. They're open from one to eight without an appointment. But if you would like an appointment, you have to pre-register in the system to uh, get sent an email to make an appointment. Perfect. You can go to preventmonkeypox.dc.gov to uh, make an appointment or pre-register. Okay, we will include that URL in the chat. Um, and then another quick question, what information uh, should a homeless shelter provide in regards to monkeypox? Ivor? So I guess there are some common sanitation practices that should be boosted in any setting uh, that might, you know, where, where uh, Agora might have monkeypox and where there's more close contact with surfaces or linens. Um, and the sanitation fee, usually, um, you know, the beds and bedding and linens are turned over, but uh, probably seeing if that can be boosted, those practices, and if, if sanitation could be uh, boosted in any kind of capacity. Uh, and what Clover said, if, if there could be a system where they could get more information of what they need to access and get that note that they're indeed homeless to, to be eligible to get the vaccine without the proof of residency. I'll just add that the CDC just put out some congregate setting um, guidelines around uh, the monkeypox virus. And so that's a good place to start. Uh, there hadn't been specific guidance for congregate settings previously. Um, but that just came out at the beginning of September. Okay, and now we'll pull up a poll. I'm so glad all of you guys hung on for this um, interactive part of the program. <laughs> well, we'll have this up for about two minutes. So please um, take the poll. Do you plan to get the monkeypox vaccine?
All right. While folks are taking the poll and maybe we can show results. Um, uh, another question has come in. How long does the virus remain infectious out of human body? Okay, I guess I'll take that one. Uh, that is a hard question. I don't think we have an exact answer for that at this point. We do know that the, um, the scab or the crust that's from, that develops around the pots is contagious. We don't know how long. So we've been, been encouraging folks to not touch those things. But Ivor, you look like you want to say something. Yes, I just do want to add that unlike COVID, when there is a droplet or anything on the surface, the studies so far have showed that that virus can live longer due to in, in open sun exposure and under different uh, thermal conditions. So extra sanitation would, would be highly encouraged. We encourage folks to roll things in when you're mm -hmm. using sheets or towels and always flip over a new side that you're touching so you contain uh, whatever's in the sheets or towels inside. Interesting. I'll take note of that. Um, <laughs> at this point, we'll show the results. Uh, thank you for the over 30 folks who answered. Oh boy, we still have some work to do. 39% uh, said yes, they will take, uh, get the monkeypox vaccine. 30% said no, 30% unsure. Okay, well, maybe we should have taken the poll at the beginning and then now, so uh, we could have seen how many we convinced, people we convinced. But okay, I will continue. So um, our next question is, um, what have we, we learned from the COVID response? Uh, COVID has been brought up a few times during this conversation. And um, what, what do you think have been the most important lessons that have been helpful um, in the monkeypox response. I can start. So I, I think we've learned a lot about contact tracing and how to deal with folks, how to talk to people and, and spread information, factual information and the power of misinformation. I also think we've learned uh, that we need to be better prepared for these emergencies and these outbreaks. I will say that um, I don't think anybody thought anything like COVID was coming at the point that it did. And so it left uh, lots of different types of entities unprepared. I think we've learned that, that cleanliness and sanitation is something that needs to be paid more attention to on a regular basis, right? And, and the patterns that people use to clean and sanitize, even our own hands, the amount of soap and paper towels that disappeared uh, during the pandemic was, was a little startling. And so, you know, we don't want people to get laxed. You know, at this point, COVID is still around. Um, the monkeypox virus is here and we need to continue those uh, sanitation efforts. I think we also learned that, that public health needs to be better partners with uh, community and community partners and have more ready and regular community engagement and have um, methods of communicating and, and understanding kind of made in as opposed to just calling on them when we need to write a report or we need to do something um, like a one-off type of thing. Okay. Um, actually, that kind of goes into the next question. I'm going to go to you, Ivor. Um, what have been some of the issues then with the initial messaging 
surrounding monkeypox. Um, you kind of alluded to that already, um, but if we can go a little bit further, even in aspects of where there might have been um, uh, in rural areas or um, for communities or, or populations that have limited English um, prof proficiency, um, are, are those areas that we've seen a sort of uh, an issue in the response? And are there other areas that we haven't talked about so far? Um, I guess that the, the problem of the initial messaging was that we, we did just target certain groups and it, it came with a lot of assumptions that are very stigmatizing, especially when it comes to trans bodies. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, we, we all come from different backgrounds, different commingling identities and values and language and thinking that this is just something that happens to LGBTQI population is simply not true. It can, it can happen to everyone. So everybody should be alerted. Uh, everybody should be their brothers or sisters keeper in a sense. So we should truly um, focus on messaging as a community and not just, you know, I, I definitely the government and uh, state local public health were really eager to prove themselves of what everything that they have learned from COVID response. Uh, yet I, I believe that the messaging was almost a little bit too eager um, in the initial phases that, that you know, kind of conflated being trans with sex work conflated different categories of people and behavior. And um, that is something that, that should be avoided in the future. So actually, let's stay on stigma for a second. Um, what are ways that we could reduce the stigma, um, especially since monkeypox has evolved? It, uh, in a similar way, I guess, with COVID, we were able to, re uh, it was, widely known what the different variants were and in some cases how they were um, being transmitted. Is, could there be a similar approach with monkeypox in the sense of, um, in a way to reduce the stigma? So definitely we, we shouldn't be using that name. That's why sort of we, we start transitioning at least a healthcare ready to using MPV until the World Health Organization doesn't rename it. Uh, World Health Organization renamed the two clades uh, from West African clade and Congo clade to clade one and clade two, but we are seemingly dealing with a completely different clade. Um, also World Health Organization opened the naming to public so anybody can uh, give their input, which I don't know how I feel about it personally. Um, but yes, so there's, there's definitely more uh, of discussion surrounding just the name and implications of the name for the community of how it could be understood. Because as I said, it was misnamed uh, at the very beginning. It, and we, it, it was just noted first in monkeys. It didn't originate in monkeys and it's mostly spread through rodents historically. Okay, we're getting a flurry of questions in. It's eight minutes left, so get your questions in now. I'm gonna run through a few. <laughs> um, 
Can you repeat, can you repeat, please, the preferred term for this condition? You mentioned MPV. Is there a consensus around that? So that's something the government has started using. And there has been um, an um, uh, sort of, I would say, um, a feedback that certain public health uh, in certain territories and states have received uh, for not using MPV and using monkeypox for so long. Um, so there is MPV, MPXV, there is different var variations of naming it. There is HMPVX or XV. Um, so yes, but MPV is something that our government has started using, uh, especially under guidance of the response team, White House response team under Demetri Daskalakis and Robert Fenton of FEMA. And, Daskalakis of CDC. Okay, I'm gonna to come to Clover next. Is it recommended everyone get the vaccine like how the COVID vaccine was rolled out since there's more availability for the monkeypox vaccine? There's more availability, but there's not enough for everybody. So we haven't moved to the recommendation that everyone gets the vaccine. Um, so right now we're, we're I hate to say it this way, but kind of leaving it to people to to identify their own risk based on your own behaviors and your own uh, social circles and how you move. But right now, there's not enough to uh, give to everybody. We give about 800 vaccination doses a day right now. Um, that is not full capacity. It's close. But uh, right now, we're averaging about 800 vaccines a day. Okay. Um, and this is to both of you. Do you know if MPV can return after an outbreak? So right now they're saying no, but I don't think we know that for sure. Um, I know the recommendation right now is that if you have MPV, you should not get vaccinated. Um, but we're right now we, we don't have information about reinfection or reoccurrence. Yes, and if I can just add, uh... We are still putting on messaging that Genios as a vaccine works in 80 to 85 percent, has 80 to 85 percent efficacy because we do not have a direct treatment for MPV yet. Uh, we are using smallpox vaccine uh, just due to the similarities in, in the genus, right? It comes from the same family, so it should work. But we do not have a specific treatment for monkeypox, and we do not have enough of a sample to really uh, say if, if something is efficacious. And there's a lot of unknowns when it comes to monkeypox and PD. And this is sort of a related question. Um, if uh, a person has contracted monkeypox, or sorry, MPV, um, can they recover without therapy like COVID-19? Yes, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, if in cuts that time shorter and mitigates the symptoms. Uh, as Clover mentioned earlier, uh, everybody can access TPOX through uh, their doctor. The doctor do needs to use the, the protocol that's called expanded access for uh, investigational new drugs. And CDC and FDA have worked to cut that protocol down to simplify it. And now a patient can even be seen virtually, which wasn't available two to three weeks ago. Uh, yet, the problem with TPOG distribution has been that it was sent directly from SNS. 
So CDC started an ASPR under ASPR's uh, jurisdiction start uh, prepositioning TPOX uh, around the country. We don't know that's a classified information. We don't know exactly where, but we do know that they're closer to jurisdictions. So it's the best thing that one can do is get into con contact with a clinician who fills these forms out. Now there isn't all of these requirements uh, that ask for photographing of the lesions to such a, an extent and such bureaucratic process. So yes, definitely one can recover and people have been recovering from monkeypox without any kind of treatment in rural Africa for decades. So we only have four minutes left. So I really want to get to this question just to tease, because I, I said Ivor yesterday, this already looks like a part two, but just to tease, we're just thinking through some of the long-term implications of MPV, particularly in regards to impact on mental health. What are we already seeing now that gives some suggestions as to what that could look like? I, the mental, mental health aspect of having anything on your body and showing on your skin can be very detrimental to overall health. Um, personally, I dealt with acne before and you know that, that, that can have very big impact on one's mental health. Uh, we are seeing that a lot of these people are having lesions and scarring, residual scarring on the mouth. And especially if somebody has increased melanin production and if somebody has, is more up on the Fitzpatrick scale, four to six, then of course the hyperpigmentation, hypopigmentation is gonna leave a greater residual mark. And just the finances that one, if one has resources to mass that up um, is gonna, yeah, it's gonna require additional resources, but it's gonna take a toll on one's mental health. And just implications it might have on just young bodies who are under different traditional values where they might be ostracized within the community and some who might due to the stigma be seen as of a particular sexual uh, orientation and then discriminated. Um, we, we've seen this happen to uh, one one really nice lady who was a cashier at the gas station in Georgia. Um, so we need to to take long-term implications of monkeypox, of MPV uh, into consideration. We've and that's something we're gonna see. Yeah, sorry, oh, sorry, Clover. That's okay. We've also seen the, the quarantine time be a, a mental health barrier. Some, they can be really long because you're supposed to quarantine until your pox have completely healed over. And that can be a month. That can be four or six weeks alone in a place where you can't leave the house, which, you know, after COVID and being home is, is, is a mental health uh, issue for all of us. Okay. Well, I've been told we can go one minute over. That does not mean send more questions right now. Uh, but we want to go through at least some of these last questions that have come through. Um, one is, is there any preventative measures in addition to vaccinations to uh, that someone can employ? I'll start with the clover. So it's skin to skin contact. So you can wear uh, long sleeves when you know you're going to be in contact or long pants. Um, those sanitizing measures that we learned and we got in good practice of during COVID, 
of keeping your hands clean and not touching surfaces as much as we would, not touching your face are all things that we can use as well. And uh, I just want to add that uh, I believe it's denial ratings for certain products that are sanitary for the classification of the virus are readily available on the website and I can find them so you can check if your uh, sanitizer or any kind of yeah, solution that you might want to use is um, appropriate for monkeypox prevention and PV prevention. Thank you so much for that. And then the last question um, is going to be, can someone who has recovered from monkeypox, sorry, MPV, develop immunity from the virus or can she still be reinfected and have symptoms? So right now they're saying no, that you shouldn't uh, get monkeypox, the virus again. But we don't know that for sure, right? They're, they're studying these things now and people who've had the virus and recovered. Um, but we don't advise people who've had the virus and recovered to get vaccine because you have immunity, at least for uh, the recent future or the, the near future that you're, uh, you'll be around. Okay. Well, at that point, uh, I just want to thank everyone who's tuned in. Today, um, some folks would like your contacts, um, Ivor and Clover, if you're allowed to give it, please feel free to put them in the chat at this time. Um, uh, Brandon, did you want to close or, or, or Keiko, or should I close? I can close. That's fine. All right. Well, tune in. I mean, uh, go ahead, Brandon. <laughs> now you can go ahead and close. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Tune in, um, you know, every Friday NMQF has our webinars. Um, I believe uh, Keiko already shared in the chat that these recordings do get posted on NMQF's YouTube channel um, and spread the word. I think there was some really great information here today. So um, please, you know, get signed up so you can receive alerts to the next one and um, share with others information you've heard today. Thank you so much to our panelists for joining us this Friday. I learned a lot. Um, I might be calling you guys for more, you know, for additional questions, um, but we thank you so much um, for participating in this webinar.